All right. Good to see you. We're going to be in three different places today. So you might want to, uh, we'll be in Luke 2, in Acts 2, and in Acts 21. So if you want to kind of find those places, we'll get started there. Now, um, I'm going to talk today. Let me give you a little warning so that I hope nobody walks out on me, but <laughs> at least not yet. Cliff, don't walk out yet. Um, um, we want to talk today a little bit about the place of women in the early church. Okay, um, there are there is some evidence uh, that women were very central uh, in the to the original uh, disciples group. So I'm not talking about the original twelve, but there were a few of them that were added to that. You see evidence of that, like everywhere Jesus goes. Uh, we're going to see that continuing in the book of Acts of, of women having just as much of a place, pretty much, as, as um, society would allow, as did men. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We're going to talk about um, some faithful women in the first century church. All three of the stories today come from the same author. So you're going to say, no, wait a minute. You said we're going to do Luke and then we're going to do Acts. Yeah, Luke wrote both of those. So Luke writes about all three of these. So I, it makes you kind of wonder if Luke had a particular interest in this. Um, but we're going to celebrate some stories that sometimes are overlooked. These women, some of them are named, some are not played important roles in the ministry of Jesus that continued in the first century of the church. So, um, give you a little bit of cultural background. So, the Jews of Luke's day lived not only in Palestine, but uh, around the Greek and Roman world throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, they kind of maintained, Jewish people maintained their own practice regarding the role of women as directed by their understanding of the scripture and a family structure. In general, a Jewish lady, a Jewish female, was attached to a man who served as her provider, her protector, and her authority, generally. Okay. Normally, a father held um, this role for a daughter until she was married, and a husband for a wife, okay? Protector, provider, all those things. Um, now, um, women were allowed to attend synagogue services, but only as observers. They didn't talk, which I think is interesting. Um, I'm, I'm not going to make a comment on that, Sherman. I dare you to do the same. All right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, they were often seated in a balcony or in a, another kind of um, remoter area, some other section apart from men. When you get to the, the temple in Jerusalem during Jesus' day uh, that was rebuilt after the exile, there was a courtyard for women, specifically for, for women, uh, beyond which women were not allowed. So that's kind of interesting. We're going to talk today about um, um, a woman in particular who uh, who uh, was at the temple, but she's going to be she's going to be able to go no farther than that right there. Okay, now um, with Roman culture and Greek culture being kind of interspersed with this, uh, 
you see a little bit different flavor, but I'm going to suggest not a whole lot. Roman society was dominated by men at all levels, business, politics, government, military, but some women gained influence by their association with powerful men. For instance, the wives of the emperors. Who, uh, which wife of an emperor do you remember from history? Cleopatra, for instance. Okay, that's the only one I can think of right now, but... So, um, they gained some notoriety, some celebrity. Uh, sometimes moms or wives or sisters would even appear on the coinage of an emperor. Interestingly, back in those days, um, women played an important role in the civic religion of Rome. Um, we kind of know some of that, and that was part of the problem in the New Testament church. But the primary sphere of influence for Roman women was in the, within the home. They managed the household. They saw to the proper raising of children. And the Romans idealized this role of the matron, the upper-class woman who managed her home well and maintained uh, a modest um, a, a life and, and was loyal to her husband. In many cases, in spite of uh, the husband's own lack of actual sexual fidelity. So when... The, the, there were, in Roman culture, there was a lot of Greek culture that survived, and it was remained kind of influential. And it was also male-dominated. Um, um, uh, the home considered to be the proper realm of, of women. Uh, but some Greek women were people of business. So you can read about that in places like Acts 17. Um, some husbands loved and respected their wives and saw them as equal partners in life. Other men had little affection for their wives, and they might abuse or ignore them. Uh, with few consequences from society outside the home. So the, it's interesting to me that the prominence of even a few women in the New Testament um, is kind of surprising and instructive to you and I 2,000-some years later. Okay, So let's look at three different stories in the New Testament. I'm going to give you some Old Testament references to the role of women in the church. Now, we're going to start in Luke 2 with verse 36. And Steve Blair, if you'll read 36, 37, and 38. These are, this is one of my favorite um, uh, after Christmas stories. So this happens literally eight days after Christmas, okay? Uh, and when I talk about Christmas, I'm talking about the original Christmas, okay? Uh, Steve, read Luke 2, verse 36, 37, 38. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay, what do we know about Anna? By the way, her name was the Greek version of Hannah. Who was Hannah in the Old Testament? Uh, it was Samuel's mom, but she knew Eli. In fact, Eli accused her of being drunk one time. Remember that one, Dan? Um, Eli wasn't all that perceptive, but uh, um, uh, even though he was the preacher of the day. But um, okay, so Hannah, this is the modern, oh, this is the Greek version of Hannah from the Old Testament. 
And uh, she's the one who dedicated her boy Samuel to the Lord. Okay, so that's a really cool parallel. So they meet this woman in the temple, Joseph and Mary, and the baby, eight days old baby. Um, what else do we know after what Steve read about Hannah, or about Anna? Does that trouble you? She's called in Scripture a prophet, Anna the prophet. Uh, does it say that there? I think it said that there. Okay, wait a minute. But women aren't supposed to do that, right? Uh, you know, there you go. I got, I got a few of them, so hang on to that because I'm going to add to your little list, Stella. Okay, so uh, she's, a, she's called here a prophet um, who was chosen by God a prophet was chosen by God to speak for him. Okay? Same thing's true today. Somebody chosen by God to speak on God's behalf. All right? Okay? We think of, you think of Isaiah, you think of Jeremiah, you think of Ezekiel, you think of um, Elijah and Elisha. But there were also some Old Testament examples of uh, prophets that were women. Um, um, Stella mentioned a minute ago, Miriam. Who was Miriam? Moses' sister who prophesied. All right, remember we said somebody who speaks, called by God to speak for him. Okay, Miriam was one of those. Um, um, I think you also mentioned Deborah. I think I heard you mention, who was also a judge. She was a leader in the nation, but she was also, she was had kind of a... Um, um, a speaker's role, a prophet's role. Um, there's a woman by the name of, I'm sorry. She also led an army. Uh, so she was a judge, a leader. She was, she was. She, she, what's his name? Wanted, said, I won't go and lead this unless you go with me. Yep. And then she recruited a general and she kind of led the general. So, um, but yeah, she was, she was a, 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 even a military leader, you could call her that, certainly a judge, and she's called a prophet, all right, or a prophetess. Now, uh, there's a lady by the name of Huldah, I put her reference in here in uh, 2 Kings, who they're going to consult. She was known as a prophet. And then uh, I put Isaiah 8.3. 8, uh, from in context, it seems like at least, pretty sure I'm right, that Mrs. Isaiah was a prophet. Mrs. Isaiah. Okay, so uh, here's one thing she didn't get quite right. If you read, I, I put the reference of Isaiah 8. We won't look there, but I'll let you look there. So Isaiah, um, Isaiah, uh, it's kind of interesting how it, it tells a story, but he and the, he and the prophetess, he and in this lady who's not named, um, Mary, they have a child whose name is, you ready? Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I think I got it right. I may have left out, I may have left out even one, um, uh, one syllable. What a name, you know? Surely, did God give her that? No, maybe so, okay. All right. So, another, so all these women in the Old Testament, and now here's this elderly lady, uh, that, that Mary and Joseph and the baby encounter in the temple eight days after Jesus, eight days after Christmas. Uh, all of these are those who are called by God to speak on his behalf. 
Interesting. Okay, now, stick with me here. Don't, don't throw me under the bus yet. All right. Um, uh, now, uh, what else do we know about her? She was from the tribe of Asher. Now, we need to kind of think about that a little bit. Trash, Asher, trash. Asher was one of the original 12 uh, tribes. See how I put tribe and Asher together? Anyway, um, uh, she one of the ori- uh, Asher was one of the original 12 tribes. You could argue that Asher became one of what sometimes are referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. Okay, 722 BC, the Assyrians uh, invaded. They took the ten northern tribes captive. Uh, they they uh, took many of them away. They left some of them behind. Most of them intermarried with the Assyrians and others, and they became, in Jesus' day, the Samaritans. But there were some who remained Israelite. They didn't intermarry other peoples. And a rare family was this family of I think the name, is it Fanuel or Penuel that's mentioned right here, who's Anna's daddy? Uh, by the way, one of the, th- one of the little details I read uh, is that the women of Asher were known to be particularly beautiful and were often chosen to be the wives of kings or the wives of, of sp- special men. So interesting. So Anna was from that tribe, but she remained, I'm an Asherite. Isn't it interesting? I'm not a Samaritan. I'm an Asherite. She hung out and stayed in Jerusalem in that area. Uh, And the Bible tells us that she was married, had no children, and uh, her husband died, and she became a young widow and remained widowed for the rest of her life. Uh, until it says here, 84. Now, it's interesting, uh, if you read verse 37, I want to think, how does he get away with this? Um, uh, Luke says, Luke says in verse 37, um, uh, okay, in, in verse 36, my Bible says she was advanced in years. Steve, I think you read she was very old. How does Luke get away with that? Uh, don't you be calling, guys, don't you be calling a woman old. That gets you slapped, okay? Um, um, I'll tell you why, I think, okay? He can get away with that because he was a doctor. Doctors can say that kind of stuff. I was in a meeting with Dr. Richard Smith, who, who I really respect, and he was talking about somebody. He may have been talking about me, but he said they were overnourished. <laughs> That was his term for fat, okay? But he's a doctor. He can get away with that, right? Maybe, maybe it's because Luke is a doctor. He can say, she was old, advanced in years. If you're 84, I don't think you're old at all, I'm telling you. But evidently Luke did. So, um, so uh, she served, and look at verse 37. She serves, 37 to 38, she serves as a good example for other widows of her day. Why would I say that? Because she just kind of every day went to the temple. She didn't live there. There wasn't a place for women to live in the temple. But she lived near there, the, uh, near the temple precincts. They took care of her there. Read in Acts 6. Read in uh, other passages. Read in Paul where he's talking about you better take care of widows. They took care of her. But she served every day. Every day. 
Uh, what a great example for the life of a widow um, here. Um, uh, so uh, women would not uh, be able to have any kind of legitimate, at least, occupation. So they had to be kind of taken care of. Who took care of them? What I'm going to say, the church. In this case, the temple. Uh, before the church came into being. So, by the way, I got to thinking about her. I read something about this somewhere. If she was 84 at this time, she would have known, she would have seen the invasion and conquer of Roman of the Romans over Palestine. She would have lived through that. Interesting. Think about those who lived through, in Europe, lived through World War II, who are still alive. That's kind of that story. She would have lived through the Roman invasion of Palestine. She would have remembered Herod the Great's coronation. I find that really intriguing. And she would have remembered his death as well. So, she's seen a lot of history. And there she was. So, Anna's proclamation. She comes up to them and says something prophetic. She makes a proclamation from God that um, reveals her expectations for this little baby boy that she just met. Probably, think about it, right before her story, in Luke 2, we meet Simeon, who also had a pro- prophetic message. She probably heard that, listened to it, and then she came up and she said, I got a word for you too. Okay. Um, so, um, her expectations were messianic and the Bible says in verse 38, I think it's intriguing. Catch this. Not only did she say that then at that very moment, she began to give thanks to God and continued to speak of him. Capital H to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So this wasn't her only message. My guess is for as long as she lived, every day in the temple precincts, guess what, gang? He's here. I saw him. He's a baby, but he's here. She continued to tell the gospel, even in its infancy, literally here. Okay? Okay, go with me over to Acts 2. What happens in Acts 2? Well, that's the, um, there are, Uh, millions of people in Jerusalem and surrounding precincts coming for the Feast of Pentecost, which was 50 days after the Passover. And many of people who were there for Passover would probably stay in town uh, for that length of time and continue behind uh, for Passover. What you need to know is that from from Luke 2, okay, till... This time, we know this pretty sure, 33 years have passed, okay? From Anna's recognition, fast forward 33 years and we're to Acts 2. How do we know that? Well, Jesus lived 33 years, okay? All right. So this is 50 years after that pivotal um, uh, Passover weekend in which Jesus was sacrificed and came back to life. Okay, so um, this is this is um, that this is 50 days after that. Okay, and um, we're going to read here 
about, uh, we're going to read what Peter preaches in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost to gather thousands. Steve, can I get back to you and have you read uh, 16 through 21? No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is beautiful. It comes as a direct quote from Joel 2. Okay. Um, and it's interesting because when I think of this quote, Peter's quoting it during his first sermon, which was a knockout sermon, evidently, right? 3,000 Men and their families were saved on that day. First day of the church. As Peter's preaching, he quotes from Joel. And when, I, when I've heard this quote, or when I've read this quote for years and years, the, the part of it that I kind of dial down on is the part where, where Peter says, and your old men will dream, uh, dream dreams and your young men will have visions. I probably got that backwards. But uh, uh, um, your, old, your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. I think about that. But, I get, but what we might be tempted to miss, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all mankind, he says. Uh, the idea here is um, that the gospel includes all people groups. Now, Peter, it's going to take Peter a little while to get used to that thought. It's going to be till Acts 10 till he gets completely used to that thought. Uh, you remember when he's at Cornelius' place? He's still got to deal with that a little bit. But all people groups are included in the gospel message, in the advance of the kingdom here, and all genders. Now, somebody go, if you would, in just a minute and read uh, Galatians 3. I'm going to have us read 26 down through 29. Who will read that for us in just a minute out loud? Thank you, John. That'd be great. And I will, uh, we'll get there in just a minute. But So let's, let's think about this here. Um, um, all mankind is included in this message and all genders. Um, uh, he says it twice in this section, specifically, specifically he says, and I'm going to quote from Joel 2, um, all mankind, verse 17, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, still verse 17, um, verse 18, on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour, in these days I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. By the way, verse 19 gets us kind of hung up. Remember, remember a couple years ago, somebody was writing a bunch of books about the blood moon. That didn't really happen in the year they thought it was going to happen. Okay, but, but they get hung up on that. But it's interesting here. I, I think the message is here. Why, why are we opening up the gospel to all people? Because that's what God intended from the beginning. But why are we going to include anybody who is called to speak? Everyone who is called to speak. And the answer to that got to be, in my, in my view, we've got to get the message out. 
John, read what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 26 through 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. John, hang on for just a second so I'll be sure I don't misquote it. There is no junior Greek race. Race doesn't matter. By the way, somebody once said uh, the gospel is not a matter of race. It's a matter of grace. Okay. Race doesn't matter. Junior Greek, there's, it's not uh, a, 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 a strict um, the gospel is not a strict um, um, product or um, um, ability to be received by Jews alone. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. Catch that? In fact, if you read the book of Philemon, it's addressed to a slaveholder. Because the great leader of the day was Philemon's slave Onesimus, who Paul basically says, this guy's been so helpful to me in advancing the gospel. Philemon, you'd be better off if you would listen to what this guy has to tell you. Forgive him. Free him. I need him in my work. That's what the whole book of Philemon's about. Neither... Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. John, did I get it right? Does he say male nor female? Okay. Hmm. Okay, chew on that for a minute because we're going we're gonna to keep dealing with it here. All right. So um, in verse 19 and 20, I just put a reference in there that these events, it's talking about the moon turning to blood, all that stuff. I'm not sure I completely understand that. Not sure I need to, but, but I think it's pretty clear that these events are pointing, pointing toward uh, Jesus' return whenever that happens, okay? They believed then he was going to return. You and I still believe it today, although we've experienced 2,000 years of kind of a parenthesis in between. So, um, so... Um, what were these events really all about? So we're in the middle of Pentecost by verse 21. We're in the middle of Pentecost, 50 days after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter's saying the door's opening wide open to all people groups. And, and God is going to use all people to share this message. He's also he's going to use men and women. To prophesy. You catch that from, from Joel. Joel saw it coming from five or 600 BC. What do you suppose this is all about? What are all these event, events really all about? What's Acts 2 really all about? I think he gives us a hint at the answer in verse 21. What do you think? The door is being shoved open for everybody. By the way, including little boys that grew up in Oklahoma. I 
Don't have any Jewish blood coursing through my veins. And yet the gospel was spoken to me at eight years old. And I responded to it. And he hands it to me as a 19-year-old to begin to share it. And now, as a really old guy, sharing it with you and with whoever will talk to me. Sometimes I think people think I'm about a half a bubble off, and they're probably right, you know. Um, I, I have funny conversations with people all the time, and, um, and my wife just kind of shakes her head, you know. My kids especially shake their head. What's dad doing? He's doing what he does. But part of that is trying to make friendships for the purpose of the gospel, you know? You know? Okay, so the door has been kicked wide open here. The Spirit is on all flesh, male and female. The announcement here is of salvation to all. Go with me. So we're in Acts. Just go to the next book to the right, book of Romans. And I want you to go with me to Romans 10. I, I, I think there's a reference to it here. I'm going to go to Romans 10. I'm going to start reading verse 9. By the way, the night my mother died, I said to Cliff Sanders, this was an hour or less after she had died, I said to Cliff Sanders, I bet she's right now cornered the Apostle Paul asking, what in the world were you talking about in Romans 9? Okay, so, and she's getting that all, all sorted out. Okay, so I'm going to start with verse um, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. By the way, the word heart there means your will, your choice. With the heart, um, uh, I got lost. With the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I think the, one of the reasons for um, this opening of the door to ministry, to, to remember again what we said prophecy is here. God gives a message to a person and says, go share the message. Is because... It was so important to them that the message get out and get out quickly. Guess what? It still needs to get out. Go with me to Acts 21. In the intervening time, the intervening time, if I'm doing my arithmetic right, and I, okay, to work on this, I needed both Rhonda and Google to figure it out this morning, okay? If Jesus was born in about uh, 4 BC, now don't, Push me on that. Just trust me. About 4 B.C. Then, fat, then, and we were at 33 A.D. I'm sorry, we weren't at 33 A.D. We would have been at 28, 29 A.D. Okay. Then fast forward another 29 years here 
to Acts 21 from where we were in Acts 2, go another 29 years or so, and we're now in 58 BC, and we're in a place called Caesarea here in your Bible. It's probably not the Caesarea Philippi that we that we see Jesus going to. This was probably uh, a place called Caesarea Maritima or Maritima, which was 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was a military center. It was a it was a uh, a center of commerce. And here we're going to meet a guy who lives there. His name is Philip. His name is Philip. What do we know about Philip? Do what? I think that's the best thing about him, Katie. In fact, he's often called Philip the Evangelist. Is he called that here? We'll read it in just a second. Um, uh, Philip the Evangelist. There you go. Katie, we know it right there. It's called Philip the Evangelist. Why is he called that? Probably because what happened to Philip in Acts 8. Okay. Now, there was something else that happened to Philip in Acts 6. And it's called out here in, um, in Acts 21. He was one of the seven. Now, who in the, what's that talking about? Okay, read the first eight verses or so of Acts 6. We won't do that now, but you can look at it. There were seven laypersons who were ordained to take care of, interestingly, the widows in the church. Philip was one of those. Guess who else was one of those? Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Okay, they were both laymen and they were powerful. So by the time we get to Acts 8, Two chapters later, Philip is told by God to go to Samaria, and he is knocking it out, leading Samaritans to faith in Jesus. He's telling the story of the resurrection everywhere he goes. As a layperson, does that tell me that any of us get an exemption from this? I don't think so. Okay? He's telling the story everywhere he goes. He's evangelizing in Samaria And the Holy Spirit says, I need you over here. And he's like moved. And he, he, along a road, and he meets a high official in the Ethiopian government. You remember that? Guy in a chariot, Ethiopian eunuch, served in the court of Candace, who was the Ethiopian leader. And he's, he's, uh, Philip just walks along and he sees this guy. He stopped and he's reading his Bible. Now, I don't know, where did a guy from Ethiopia get a copy of the Bible? But he had a copy of the book of Isaiah from somewhere. Well, he'd just been in Jerusalem. So you think they had a bookstore there? I, no, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Might have. Might have, you know. Yeah. He went to Books a Million and got a copy of Isaiah. But I, I don't know. I just happened to think of that. Cindy, I'm not right. You know that. So I'm thinking, where did he get a copy of Isaiah? But he had one, and he's reading it, reading it. And he's reading Isaiah 53. What kind of a setup is this? It's a wonderful setup. It's what my friend Dr. Cepeda calls a divine appointment. It was one of those. And he reads out loud to Philip and says, this guy talking about himself or somebody else? And Philip right then shared the gospel with him. He saw a puddle of water somewhere and he said, any reason I can't be baptized? No, let's knock it out right here. And then Philip was moved somewhere else. That's this guy. Let's read his story here. So, John, can I come back to you and have you read uh, verse 8 and 9 out of 21? 
Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Okay. Philip was known for his power as an evangelist. The only other thing I'll say about him from Acts 21, by the way, he's been doing evangelism ever since Acts 8 and before, okay? Probably since Acts 6, certainly, and probably before that. So probably since Pentecost, Philip, as a layperson, has been sharing the gospel, talking about Jesus, talking about the resurrection. He was an evangelist. He had power as an evangelist. Now, the second thing you need to know about him, he must have trained his kids very well. Must have trained his kids. Because what is said of his four maiden daughters here in verse 29? Every one of them preached. Okay, what did we say prophecy was? God reveals a message to you and you share it in your his mouthpiece. You, you talk, you tell what he told you to tell. All four of Philip's daughters did that. And that's what they were known for. Interesting. By the way, when 20, I want you to catch this. How does Luke know this? Look at verse, in chapter 21, uh, as you look at verse, um, well, when John read verse 8, on the next day we left. What does that imply? Dr. Luke was with Paul. This is the story of Paul. Dr. Luke was with him. He was there, met the four girls, and met Philip. Okay, what are we going to do with this? Well, uh, I, an aged widow, a group of women who'd followed Jesus, several of them named Mary. That's pretty confusing, including his mother. By the way, you know, she was one of the kind of inner circle. And she may have lived to a fairly advanced age herself, Mary uh, the wife of jo- the widow of Joseph, the, the mother of Jesus and, and James and Jude and all those. Can you imagine how Mary could blow up a Bible study? Can you imagine? She was a follower of Jesus. Can you imagine after Acts 2 when they'd be in a Bible study and they'd, they'd be talking about something and Mary would say, eh, it didn't happen exactly like that. I was there. Okay. From the beginning. From nine months before the beginning, right? So, an aged widow that we read about in Luke 2, a group of women who we've talked about in the book of Acts who followed Jesus, they remained in Jerusalem after his ascension, a band of four unmarried sisters. Now, don't tell John MacArthur what I'm getting ready to say. And Beth Moore. And Anne Graham Lotz and Deidre Franklin. Kay Arthur, who my mom learned from. All of them were given this task. Well, I think it continues yet today. The focus ought to be, so I'll fill in your last blank and I'll leave you alone for a week. 
The focus, I think, ought to be not on gender. By the way, have you, got, have you read this stuff? I read it this morning about the Mr. Potato Head controversy. How stupid have we gotten? If you haven't read about it, you may not want to. But okay, it, it was first of all going to be just Potato Head, and now it's back to Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. Anyway. Um, but focus isn't really on gender, is it, in the Bible? It's not on race. It's not on social status. It's all about, that's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. It's all about answering God's call, whatever that is on your life. Now, I used this as kind of an intro to where we're going to start. We're going to start a new, uh, by the way, you know, tomorrow's March. That make you crazy? Makes me crazy. Tomorrow's March. Uh, So we're going to start in kind of our spring series. Uh, We're going to look at uh, prophets. And in the Old Testament, we'll start there, and we'll look at some things that they had to say and the calling that some of them had on their lives. So we'll start there next week. What I'm going to say to you, coming out of this last series, ask God what he's calling you to. You know? Can I promise you something? He's called every one of you to something. You'll be a lot more fulfilled in life if you find that. And if you do it, answer the call. All right? I'll see you next week. We will be in Deuteronomy 18 next week. I'll see you there. Happy Sunday.